Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. My name is Ben Myers. I'm your host for today's episode. I'm a housing market researcher, baseball coach, and I drive a van. We are experimenting with a slightly different format on the podcast today, more of a roundtable discussion with a couple of uh, GTA's smartest analysts and industry participants. But before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our tremendous sponsor. The Toronto Under Construction Podcast is sponsored by BCGI Barron Consulting Group, an executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. Since 1995, Robert Barron and BCGI have completed over 1,000 searches on behalf of developers, investors, occupiers, and lenders across North America. Their scope includes acquisitions, development, asset management, finance, corporate real estate, and board directors. BCGI has established partnerships with pension funds, REITs, and fund managers searching for talent. They are a trusted source of career advice and guidance for real estate professionals in North America. BCGI can be reached at www.bcgi.ca. All right, so three guests today. So instead of me doing the introductions, I'm going to get you guys to introduce yourself. So why don't you tell me about tell me who you are, obviously, what company you work for, and what you do at that firm. So Frank, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Ben. Appreciate being here. Thanks for having us all. Uh, my name is Frank, or Francesco Margani. I'm the uh, principal broker and founder of Frank & Co., a boutique real estate uh, debt advisory and brokerage for developers and asset owners uh, across the uh, GTA. And soon to be in um, BC. BC, wow. Big new breaking news. Breaking, breaking news, news on right the podcast. Here. First time ever. <laughs> Linda. Uh, I'm Linda from uh, Harbor Equity. I'm the Vice President of Investments. Uh, Harbor Equity is a real estate private equity fund, uh, primarily focused on ground-up developments across Canada. We partner with sort of mid-sized developers, you know, through various asset classes from residential, well, primarily residential, but we also participate in, you know, industrial and a little bit of retail. Um, so far, no office, uh, but uh, yeah. So across the spectrum. So probably a good thing to avoid the office right now. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Nerez Lalani. Uh, again, thanks, Ben, for having us here. I'm the president at Mod Development, and we're a, a builder here in the GTA. Awesome. And uh, all right, so let's get started. So I'm just going to throw out a few topics, and then we'll just kind of see where, where, where the discussion goes. So the kind of the topic du jour has been the green belt. So there was a uh, auditor general report that uh, that came out and Ontario Construction News did a did a quick summary. So I will I will read a little bit of it just to, to give a little bit of flavor. So an investigation by the auditor, auditor general has found that the province decision to open up the protected green belt to housing construction was skewed towards certain developers with ties to the housing minister. Ooh, the auditor general found that the government proceeded with little input from experts. They did not call me. Did they call you, Frank? Uh, They did not weigh environmental, agricultural, or financial risk and impacts to remove some land from the Greenbelt to be used for development. Premier Doug Ford said the government will not reverse its decision in allowing development on the Greenbelt as he discussed the importance of meeting housing targets. However, this report has caused calls for the immediate resignation of the housing minister and return the affected lands to the Greenbelt. So the owners of the 15 sites removed from the Greenbelt protection 
could see an $8.3 billion increase in the value of those lands, and 83% of the lands were the highest quality agricultural lands. So, so Frank, let, let's let's start with you. You probably have you know the most experience dealing with suburban development lands. Uh, you know, what are your what are your thoughts on this this whole situation? Uh, unpopular opinion, but like, is it really a shock? <laughs> like, <laughs> wow, developers, you know, cozying up with politicians. Sorry, uh, Nerez, but uh, <laughs> no, no offense, to you. <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, you know, I it's just yeah. Like at the end of the day, I'm looking at this, you know, from a as a maybe from a political uh, aspect and saying the Ford government was just a little bit idiotic in how it's approached its the the process itself and could have done a better job again for lack of a better word covering up the process. But like at the end of the day, you know, we know. We know for a fact that, you know, favors bring out favors and influence brings out results. And so, yeah, like agricultural land should be protected 100%. You know, I think they they did a, a, a pretty good um, story and a play by opening up more development lands for, or like, sorry, mo- opening up more of the Greenbelt lands for um, agriculture um, as opposed to the lands that they took out of the Greenbelt. So I think that was a good play fundamentally. Um, but I, I'm not surprised. Like these are lands for a lot of them might be prime agriculture, but they're on the cusp and on the edge of existing urban sprawl and they're lands that are quickest to market and so you know it's not a surprise and it's not a surprise that people uh, and various developers canvassed hard worked really hard over years and some of them maybe just months to uh, <laughs> to get these lands out of the green belts um, and the offset is that we got more green belt yeah yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. I, uh, I mean, obviously, I work in primarily in the, the high density market. So the green belt is, it's been good for my my business. But the, I think the funny thing um, that I that I find about uh, the whole process is how angry environmentalists are that the process wasn't fair. They say, well, these these other developers didn't get to bid on the lands, which I I thought was pretty funny. I'm like, well, if you're fundamentally against someone, is it really that? Would you? Why do you care that it's a fair process or not? Yeah, right. They, so they should be caring about whether or not the lands are in or out of the green belt. Period. Yeah, exactly. The process I mean, is a be, totally separate matter. Yeah, that's that should be the thing. They just dislike Doug Ford. I don't love the guy, but obviously, uh, the thing actually I dislike about this is is the conservatives have made a lot of efforts to increase housing supply in, in the GTA and put a lot of you know effort into that. That's really kind of undermined all of those efforts to increase, you know, urban development, increase the, you know, the uh, apartments. And, uh, and so this is really kind of undermine that. You know, that a lot of people don't of like to know how the sausage is made, right? So <laughs> at the end of the day, we're getting an end result of more housing and it's got to be delivered. And at the end of the day, that's what we need. That's what we want. And yeah, it's been an ugly process, but it's not at all surprising. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I feel bad, you know, you think of a, uh, if someone that had bought those lands and then intended them to be residential development, and then they got added to the green belt. So, uh, I imagine that they would be, uh, they'd be a little, little upset about that. I, I, we had actually, we had Ramsey on the show and, and, uh, which is a client of, uh, of Harbor equity. And he, uh, he said they actually have some lands that, that they had, that were part of a subdivision that had already been approved that got kind of chopped off that were part of those lands. So, but he said that they were not one of the groups that uh, got added. So <laughs> anything you I wanted to add? I know Linda, you do, you guys some do some work in the suburbs. We, we do. Um, and I think Frank, you know, had a lot of good points and as it relates to process, I think I read in the article that it took them three weeks, um, for them to do the entire thing. Like I can't even underwrite <laughs> a deal in three weeks. So I don't know how they managed to do all of that. 
Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I know obviously their you know maybe intentions were were good, but um, unfortunately, it's not going to be viewed favorably by the public. And you know, I think. And I think I, I'm probably with the public in terms of how this whole thing played out. Um, and, uh, and I think in terms of Greenbelt, I mean, not in particularly with respect to these lands that were opened up, but, you know, developing in subdivisions can be very costly. Um, so I don't know that it should be the province's uh, priority to, you know, assess and restructure, you know, where the where the green belt lies. Like the infrastructure just isn't there in a lot of these areas, and it's there's a reason why they're farmland, right? Um, the the cost to bring in the roads and the sewers and and the water, it's it's massive infrastructure projects, and you know, oftentimes it's in these small little towns, and they just can't support it. And so who who bears the cost? It's oftentimes developers. They have to upfront hundreds of million dollars of cost to bring the infrastructure in place because the city also can't support it. Um, so I think, you know, again, from a cost uh, or use of capital perspective, there are probably better ways for developers to put that capital into more dense projects rather than in, you know, middle of nowhere. And again, this is not related to the article in terms of where they <laughs> opened, but just yeah. my no, thoughts it on is, It is interesting that you know, there's been so much development on the other side of the green belt, right? So the demand, you know, people love single family homes. That's their, they, that's their preference. And if you they can't find it in the GTA and their price point, they're going to Kitchener Waterloo. They're going to places like Bimbrook that I know that you guys are involved in. They're going to Peterborough. They're going to Aurelia and Collingwood and all these places. So we're really just, you know, that sprawl that everyone hates. It's just moving it somewhere else, right? It's not, you know, completely eliminating it, right? So anyways, it's, it's, it's just it's really a tired discussion <laughs> with, yeah, I've been having it for uh, you know for almost 15 years here so so let's get into you know something that's a little uh, you know closer to to my heart and that is the multi-family market so I wanted to read uh, a couple quick things here and I know you know just bear with me as I kind of read this stuff here so um, it was uh, I was sent this from Zonda and it's their Q1 2023 GTHA multi-family take so, so it said the market for a new multi-family residential remained on its bumpy course in the GTHA through the first quarter of 2023 with apartment and townhome sales down 72% from the exceptionally strong period of Q1 2022. New project launches sold on average at $1,343 per square foot, down 3% year over year. Said well-priced projects in primary locations sold well, while developers remained cautious in bringing new projects to a slow market, with only 10 condominium apartments and three townhome projects launched. So um, a little bit more recent uh, information from uh, Build and Altus, GTA new home sales market slowed in June. So the condominium apartment sales total 1,957 in June, up 11% from June 2022, but 21% below the 10-year average. There were 569 single-family home sales in June, up 256% from June 2022, but 49% below the 10-year average. So increased inventory had a softening impact on pricing. The benchmark price for new condominium apartments was $1.09 million, which is down 8.4% over the last 12 months, and the benchmark price for single-family homes was uh, 1.72 million, which is down 6.9% over the past 12 months. So I'm just going to direct this to, to Nurez. Um, you know, it's been a full year of slower sales activity in the new housing market. You know, what are your, you know, internal discussions that you're having with at your team? Are you expecting an up, uh, uptick anytime soon? Are you, are you guys kind of locking down, preparing for, you know, a longer period of uh, stagnation? 
Well, you know, obviously these are questions that we go over every day. (laughs) All the office talk is uh, definitely not around the green belt, but what's going on closer closer to home for us. Um, Look, we're we're kind of level setting our internal sales assumptions. And I think that's a necessary uh, thing to do. Uh, We got to stick within how we underwrite and all the rest of it. And there's a lot of wishful thinking that perhaps all of us had earlier in the year. Uh, the realities of what's now happening as a result of interest rates and trade inflation costs and all the rest of it is it has to be digested uh, in a very sober and, and real fashion. And so as a result, you know, we're underwriting lower PSFs, uh, higher commissions. Um, you know, the broker community is very important to the pre-sale condo market, higher, you know, better, stronger, more creative incentives. And, you know, one of the biggest things is a longer, longer process to get to 75% sold. You know, I think gone are the days where we were blowing things out and, you know, it was two, three months and all of a sudden you were, aha, onto the next one type of feeling or, yeah. we, you know, we crossed that major hurdle and it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I think those days are gone. And so, you know, those, those uh, impacts to schedule and IRR and all those things start getting, you start getting real when you start saying maybe it's going to take us a year or whatever the case would be to get to 75% sold. So, um, you know, I do think... We are optimistic that we'll start seeing some changes in Q1 of 2024. Might be a little bit early to make that call, but we feel that with some stability um, from a rate perspective, um, the pre-con investor will be back. From your perspective, Linda, um, obviously you guys do you do uh, provide equity to condo developers. Are you seeing fewer uh, developers uh, coming to you for equity? Are you the sites that you did take on? Is you know what's what's the consensus? Are they looking to delay launch to next year, or are they are they feeling that carry costs burning uh, burning up their wallet? What's what's uh, what are you hearing? So in terms of. Um I guess, well, to to break down your question, so in terms of developers coming to us, um, I think what we're seeing in the the market is, um, or the way that we we view the market right now, we're obviously taking a much more um, cautious view in terms of future prices. Um, We are trying to structure our deals in a way, because what we've seen a lot in the the past 12 months is cost overruns, Um, you know, not just due to construction costs going up, but obviously the rapid onset of interest rate increases um, from 2022 until now. Um, So we're we're trying to build in, um, you know, additional reserve from our end in terms of forecasting what the equity requirements are and structuring our deals in a way that sort of limits our our funds exposure to potential cost overruns um, in, you know, the develop. So whereas in the past, for example, a lot of our deals were, you know, we agreed upon a structure of, you know, whether it's 75, 25 uh, split between the partner and, and um, sorry, our partner and us. We're now trying to, we're seeing a lot of developers come to us where they have almost a, a shortfall um, because they went to market or they, they we went to market earlier in the year or last year um, thinking that they were going to get financing at a certain amount. Um, and they've now gotten paper from the banks saying that they have a shortfall because the banks have done their own underwriting. They've reduced uh, price of future you know, unsold units. Um, and so when they, whereas they thought equity was going to be $10 million, it could be 12 or $13 million. And they've come to us for those type of you know, shorter term loans that hopefully are outstanding for two to three years 
Whereas in the past, most of the deals that we've done were, you know, from the time of inception, from when we bought the land through development until completion, we're seeing a lot more of that um, come through because, again, they can't get financing. Um, so we, I think, and, and it works, you know, well for us as well because we typically structure those, we view those deals as less risk. Um, and we, it's almost a quasi-pref deal where we say, okay, give us a fixed rate of return at this percent um, and everything else you make over and above that is yours. So if they are more bullish in terms of where the market is headed, um, it works for them and it protects our downside as well. So that's one thing that we've seen more, more in the last, call it, six to eight months um, in this in this current environment. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Linda sees basically what we've been seeing as well, which is like broken performance. So like performance are just not where all the ambitious and optimism, uh, the ambition and optimism that generally exists within our industry, it still exists, but there's a sobering reality that's come to light. And that sobering reality is reflected in pro forma. And that pro forma reflects into, you know, capital investment, equity investment, and debt investment. And those two, those two markers have completely shifted. You know, we, ha- we are, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, operating on a much less liquid market from a capital perspective than ever before. Brings amazing opportunities to Linda and her team and, and others uh, in that space because they can pick and choose amazing deals. But we've seen overruns on all of our performas, every single developer without fail, and it's mainly, um, you know, cost overruns are like hard costs because we've had escalating costs on trades and supplies, but a lot of it is interest. You know, imagine having a under construction project, halfway built, you know, you got a three or four year term on your construction loan, you, you peg an interest rate that you assume in your pro forma, you know, you've got, you know, $5 million assumed that that's what the interest is gonna be on a, you know, small size project. Halfway through the project, you've got doubling of interest rates. Your your number now goes from five million dollars of, of interest requirements to ten or more because you're expanding your your you're taking down more loan as your project is nearing completion. And so now the banks are looking at you and saying, "Oh, you got to cough up another five million of equity because guess what? We're not as liquid as we were." two years ago, we're not going to cover that overrun because we don't know what those end unit price points of unsold inventory is going to be. So we're pricing it down to Linda's point. We're having a sobering second thought to Nurez's point, And we need you to kick in the cash. And like, that's a lot of cash. So there's all sorts of structures that we provide that we look at and, and bring and bring deals to, uh, you know, Harbor and otherwise that are like, you know, equity deals, pref equity deals, mezzanine deals, you know, uh, pseudo equity, what do we call it? Dequity deals. Like we're getting <laughs> ridiculously creative in how we solve problems, which is really, really cool and fun, but it is a reality of where we are in the marketplace. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, like just before we were we were setting up, I was talking about how difficult it is to do my job because I'm trying to figure out where the revenue is, and the comps are all, you know, for the most part, not recently launched projects. They're projects that launched during you know the peak of the market that sold very well, and they're eighty percent sold, and they've got twenty percent inventory, and that twenty percent inventory is reflecting is still reflective of March of twenty twenty two. No one has yet, you know, really started to slash. Uh, uh, pricing on unsold inventory unless they are weeks before registration or weeks before closing that we've started to see a little bit of that um, you know projects that are five years old starting to, to lower their pricing so it makes it 
it makes it quite difficult to, to and then again there's the the problem of the massive incentives being offered yeah. in the marketplace which is very difficult for me to get a hold of and then even put a value on like what is the value of a five percent down payment versus a, a 15 percent down payment you know it all really depends on how long it is between Chloe you know and it's like I can't do that math there's someone that can do that math but I can't do it in my well, we, we were so. talking offline and your resume was making a good point about like you know timing right like when are when are you closing these units what is the inventory level and what's the reflective value of those inventory units relative to resale in the same neighborhood like how do you rationalize that and how do you how do you account for that in, in going to a market and launching a new product? Yeah, well, that that's that's a perfect segue into what I wanted to talk about next is something that almost never gets talked about in any of the the events that I that I go to or I attend. And maybe it's because we've you know for the last twenty five years we've had a pretty strong market, other than you know maybe six months in the global financial crisis and maybe a little bit in in twenty seventeen uh, maybe on the low rise side twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen wasn't very good, but on the high rise side it's really been pretty good for almost 25 years since the late 1990s all right so <laughs> it's still great, it's still great. Yeah. Yeah. we so, got this so you know i was you know i was actually talking to, to uh, one of Nerez's guys about this so let's just you know for 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 sake of argument and i'm gonna and i'm gonna throw a scenario out here for you frank so a new condo project launches and it's $1,675 a square foot in March of 2022. Sells pretty well. And so now it's December 2026 and that building is about to, to register in a couple months. Uh, and the resale in the neighborhood is $1,425 a square foot, uh, about 15% less than the sales price. So the developer has kind of surveyed their purchasers and it looks like only half of the buyers uh, can uh, secure a mortgage to close. What do you what do you, you think is going to happen in that situation? Like, where where, do, where would you see if you're if you were advising one of your developer clients and they came to you with this scenario? Like, what could you do for them? What do you think could happen? What are some what are some potential options there? Yeah, that's 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 one hell of a crystal ball. But like, <laughs> but let's like let's play that out a little bit. Okay, so you're short on your revenue side and you've got to repay a bank debt of X, whatever that number is. It could be twenty million. It could be two hundred million. And you're short on the revenue side. And who knows what's happened to your budget in the in the in the meantime? So hopefully you've got some profitability still there. So there's a couple options, right? You go out and you secure um, some capital through an inventory loan, right? So you, there's inventory financing available. I would suspect the leverage of that inventory financing uh, is reduced rather than, you know, it's, it's, it's mark-to-market pricing. So you're pricing that inventory relative to whatever that value is that day, and you're getting some form of leverage somewhere between, I don't know, 60 to 75%, depending how confident the market is at the time. Um, that's one option. The other option is to, uh, you know, encourage your purchasers to find some private force, uh, uh, private capital. And, you know, no one likes to talk about it, but it's a reality of the marketplace. A lot of, a lot of Purchasers are taking on secondary debt um, um, in the form of a, a second mortgage, a private mortgage, or even a first mortgage that's private. Uh, high interest bridge financing, bit of a hope and prayer that the market turns around, they're able to get refinanced properly through a bank financing in a year or two years after that. Um, but that's the reality of, of the space. The other option is also to bring in an equity partner um, or some form of, you know, let's call it quasi equity, uh, secure on the balance of the units create some liquidity, pay out the premium debt uh, just to get that done, and then you know heavily market those units for, for sale. And I'm not on the sales side of marketing, so I don't know what you do with marketing condos below market price. Yes, it's, it's, it's an interesting scenario to, to keep in mind because we've never seen it. You know, we've, we've, you know, I've been doing, when tracking the new condo market for, you know, for, for 20 years, and there's always been this, 
premium, you know, a premium of about 10 to 15% for a new condominium over uh, uh, kind of a recently completed resale building. And that it shrunk a little bit in kind of the slower markets, you know, uh, 2008, 2013, it might've got down to 5% or so, but it was always, you know, you're buying a, a project that's got that, you know, it's got a, a warranty, you get to pick your own suite, you can pick your finishes and you're buying a condo market future. So you're betting on the value of that, that project in the future. And then when projects got bigger and bigger, meaning the closing date became maybe five years or six years out and you bet on 5% increase over that time, you could pay a 30% premium or a 35% premium. And and so we started to get a little bit of cost push inflation, obviously, last year because construction costs were up. We saw you know demand pull inflation because all the investors were super excited because everything was going up in value. And oh my God, this guy just went up. So, and then- you know, the marketplace. Yeah, yeah. And then there was even, you know, I t- talked to a few developers, you know, what we call margin push inflation, right? It's like, okay, things are going well. So I was going to go for this much. Now I'm going to go for this much. Things right? always go up. Yeah. Man. So things are were, were going up. And then so it became totally kind of disconnected from the resale market. And now we're kind of you know, potentially reaping the uh, um, the negative part of that process. So hey, I'm going to throw a scenario out to you, Nurez. So there's a building next, maybe next door to yours. And that's in that developers in this similar situation with a, you know, all the purchase, the value of the units are way under. And um, and he doesn't think many of the units are, are going to close. Do you think that someone could cancel all their deals and then relaunch the building as a, as a rental? Is that is that something you could even picture happening? Well, thanks for the easy question. <laughs> uh, I was like, I'm walking out of the room. I'm pulling the Homer Simpson into the bush. Well, I will say to you before getting into addressing your question that the reputation risk with doing something like that would just not be something that we would touch. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to, to address or analyze what you put forward, I mean, I think the gap in the PSF value of rental versus condo will likely, it's, it's too big to bridge. Yeah. Um, but working working backwards, you'd have to believe in kind of $8 per square foot rent <laughs> to be made whole yeah. at uh, yeah. sixteen seventy five. And, um, you know, I don't think a node at 1425 PSF node, you know, at 1425 would rent for that in 2026. So I, th- I think it's a pretty big leap. You know, look, a solution lies in how much the deposits you're able to keep. And, um, you know, if you can keep 15% of those deposits, net of what you can't get refunded from the brokers and sell it for 1425, that might be cleanest. But again, I probably, you know, would start off by saying we wouldn't touch something like that. Yeah. But from a math perspective and kind of overall deal perspective, that's the way I'd see it. Yeah. But, but even the bigger issue here, like, and you guys must see it as well, is, you know, costs like there's a minimum cost to building a condo like there's a floor number sure and and that's only gone up and so if that number is going up and then affordability becomes a problem people can't afford the actual purchase of that unit because of whatever the valuation might be and there's no margin nothing gets built and we we have a bigger problem given the fact that we already have a housing shortage and we've got X many people coming to the city or the GTA. What does this translate into? Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Like, and Linda touched on a little bit more in terms of the deals that she's seeing working out right now, where it's an equity plug or some mez or whatever you want to call it to get things rolling. Um, at a certain point, you know, as you were saying, Frank, pro formas crash, and this isn't rocket science. Our business, right? You know, the bank expects a certain margin. We we expect a certain margin for the risk and a certain profit scenario for the risk we're taking on, and um, you know, trade pricing and issues like these are real issues, and it's not something that can be 
I think a lot of us, a lot of people in our industry just took it for granted that pricing would keep going up on the revenue side. So it would cover up for some of the rapid inflation we were seeing in, on the cost side of the business. That's not going away. Right. You know, perhaps anecdotally, we're hearing some of the larger uh, inputs on the on the hard cost side stabilizing, maybe softening slightly, but not really. Uh, the one big thing is uh, the component and that is labor that is definitely not going down. So you need to count on on that aspect. And so I think all these things, to your point, Frank, it's 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 converging on a very shrinking margin opportunity. And so things don't underwrite. And what do you do in that environment? And from a macro perspective, you know, it's going to just exacerbate this housing situation that we have. And it's not, you know, this perception that there's greedy developers out there. It's just not the case. Every Those margins are thin. I see them. The margins are like thin. They're big numbers, are, but they're thin margins. And that capital has been, you know, it's, it's, it's equity capital and it's investor capital. And it's not like it's, it's all developer capital all the time. Absolutely. And, and, that, and that capital requires a particular return for the risk that it believes it's, it's, that's being applied. And so... Like it's it's a larger and grander problem that we need to we need to understand. I'm sure Ben will get into some of the other input costs, <laughs> i.e., development charges and all the rest yeah. of it that are not making it any easier. But um, yeah, no, it's 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 difficult times making things work. Uh, it was a lot easier when we could just keep saying that revenues were going were going to be going up and let's <laughs> yeah. just get going. And everyone was built for speed. And I mean, we have this time. we have this issue in our in our marketplace that other markets don't have and that's why we've you know delivered a lot more housing than than they have but pricing has gone up for 26 consecutive years all right and for the first 10 to 15 percent of the uh, 10 to 15 uh, of those years an investor could look at the price that they're paying for a condominium they could anticipate that the value of that would go up by the time they the building completed and they could run the numbers and they could see that they would get cash flow on that unit now, okay i'll put a hundred bucks, 200 bucks in my, in my pocket every second, not a huge cash flow. In some instances, maybe they were making uh, 300, $400 a month, but it worked. And then we got to the point where rents did not go up at the same pace as, as condo pricing because of, you know, because of cost, because of limited amount of land, driving up land costs because of development, but all those things. So then we got, we started getting to the point where investors were buying solely for capital appreciation. That was the only reason that they were buying because units were going up and these t- buildings started to get taller and taller. They were no longer 20 and 25 story towers. They were now 50 story towers and then 60 and then 75 and then 80. And then now we have 95 story towers, which require 1,000 investors <laughs> to, to make those projects work. So now, if one, you don't have appreciation in the marketplace, then that means you're not going to get investors, right? And so if we don't have investors, we have a very limited amount of people that are willing to buy a condominium and wait four years, put down 20%, right? Take that risk that the project will get canceled or delayed or yada, 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 versus just going to the resale market, walking through the unit, putting 5% down, seeing how they, they like it and go from there. How right. Many so there's units are coming to market though. Like, I don't have the data. You would yeah, have that I data, mean, but like, I would be surprised. Like people, not don't, enough. people don't have to sell. <laughs> they don't sell yeah. and people don't want to sell because then they have to buy something else. And yeah. now they're going to buy at a premium or buy somewhere else completely. Cause they bought so, you know, inexpensively five years ago, six years ago. So I, I just don't see the retail mar- the resale market being the leading indicator. I, I go back to the cost side because I, I wonder, I always anticipated if there was going to be a slowdown, which we're seeing because you guys don't like, no one wants to launch product, not no one, but fewer launches are happening because no one knows where the market is and no one knows what the price points are. So they don't go to market. They delay more delays, less starts, less starts, less completions, less completions, less housing, more people coming in supply issue. So 
You'd think though, with less starts, major trades start getting a little bit panicky. They thought they had three or four projects lined up for the next three, four years, and now they don't have any. Doesn't that, like, and I don't know, like, does that, you see that in the low rise, I imagine too, and the high rise, Linda and Norez. Uh, uh, like, doesn't that happen? Don't the trades come back and say, you know what? We'll take a discount. We'll charge you less. We'll, we'll eat some of the costs just to get work and get labor on and cover our overheads. Well, that's probably a good question for you because you're probably seeing a lot of poor pro formas from yeah, your clients. I don't think we've seen that yet trickle through, at least not on our projects. Um, but what we have seen is rather than trades coming in and saying, all right, here's my terms. I'm not holding prices at all. You know, you have 60 days. And then if you don't want to honor it, that's fine. I have other jobs. Now they're starting to honor prices for longer periods of time. So, you know, now it's six months or maybe even a year, up to a year, the whole prices. That's sort of what we've seen. Obviously, lumber prices have come down, but labor costs have gone up. Right. Um, there are union rate increases scheduled um, every single year. So we are not seeing any um, any any compression on on cost yet. Do you feel that that's going to come, though? Like, I just look I think that after a year of like limited product coming to market, these trades are going to sit back and say, OK, we got to do something about this. I think it's probably we're so delayed still, right? Because the sales were still at a record level in March of 2022. So some of those projects are probably still they're even still starting building. construction yeah. now, demand, right? Yeah. And then so they're going to be under construction for two, three, four so, years. So can I go right? back to the question so. about the crystal ball in five years from now? Because I think <laughs> now the costs will be down and the prices will be okay yeah. and everything will be fine. Yeah. Well, oh, that, the party you're saying the party will be back on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, the fundamental problem with our market, our market is being a high rise market. It's such a lagged process. Right. Yeah. So the slow sales that are happening now are not going to be reflected in the resale market until 2024. I mean, 2025, probably 2026, 2027. Right. So we'll start to see the amount of supply come on the market way lower and, uh, and and prices go up. So now, you know, because people aren't buying, we're seeing so much of that demand shift to the rental market. And we're seeing, you know, rents go you know through the roof. Right. So, um, you know, doing some underwriting even for for Nura's a little while ago, you know, everything was four bucks a rent. Now those those same are five dollars. Yeah. The exact same building. You might get to eight bucks. Two years ago, like at yeah. this pace. Hey, listen, I've uh, definitely been wrong before, so let's <laughs> throw this one on the pile. But uh, going back to you know the discussion about hard costs or trades, and perhaps them saying, "Well, hey, I won't have the work and so forth." I mean, we're not there yet, is what mm -hmm. we're seeing. And you know, it, there's a there's a shortage of skilled trades that can do. I, I can only speak for the high rise space. You know, let's look at forming, for example. There's only you know a handful of guys that are really good, and they are in demand. And they also are having a very hard time keeping all these crews that they've hired up for. They don't want to let guys go. It's difficult for them to find great labor. So they're they're kind of they've got some work now. They're actively looking for work. They need to keep these crews uh, going. Um, but to Linda's point, even though these union rates have been negotiated, I think for the next couple of years, um, it's not getting any cheaper, and it's and it's getting harder for these guys to find someone. So I don't think we should expect them to really cool off and pass on those savings to us because they've got their own internal problems, um, labor being one of the biggest ones. And their input costs, too, aren't coming down. Like, no matter what, uh, you know, I, I've obviously we've seen things like labor and so forth, or sorry, in, in lumber. But a lot of the inputs really haven't adjusted. And, and I don't see that coming in the foreseeable future. So I think we've got to be cognizant of the fact that when we're underwriting, it's a very interesting time, right? We're looking at hard to predict PSF on the revenue side. Uh, you can only carry 
conservative numbers on the cost side, and that's the squeeze, right? It's just um, we don't have uh, the kind of crystal ball, positive crystal ball yeah. that we we were uh, you know we were counting on. So that's that's going to be. I think this is going to be a problem that's going to haunt us for a while. Yeah. Uh, so so I guess I, that you know going off my of my uh, my my questions here, but it, it makes it's a good segue into okay, costs have to eventually come down, but the other the most elastic part of the relationship is land, right? So if you're, you know, you're doing your residuals, okay, well, the residual is going to come out of the, of the land, but it seems like vendors always seem to be fairly sticky in terms of what their expectation of the value of their property. And, and uh, they've seen so many times where the market has slowed and then come roaring back again. And, you know, the, the neighbor just sold for $250 per buildable foot. Why would I now sell to you, Nerez, at $120 per buildable foot? Because you're saying, Saying, hey, well, my costs are up. Oh, well, I said, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so maybe, is there any color that, that any of you guys have, and in, 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 in on the acquisition side, and uh, kind of vendors' expectations? Are they going down? Are they willing to accept? Or, or, or are they, you know, what, what's what, what's the deal there? I, I think we all, we all play in the space, so we probably all have different answers to this. And, and you know, I, I'll say, like, we all play in the early stage space where, you know, Norez is looking for land, uh, Linda's financing land uh, as an equity partner, and I'm, I'm getting land deals coming to me looking for capital. So yeah. um, I'd say, that, you know, unless there's a distress situation where someone is, is distressed on that land, you're, you aren't seeing a reduction in the land price. There's no need for someone to sell. For the most part, you've got sort of, I, I've seen two types of vendors in the marketplace. One, old, long-time holders of land that have been there multi-generational. Absolutely no need to sell. They'll wait it out another cycle, another two cycles. They don't care. They just want, if they're going to think about uh, selling something, it's it's a strategic, it's a, a purpose, it's a tax purpose, it's a uh, um, estate family, planning, estate, family exactly. And, and they'll hold that price and, and they're going to get a decent price for it. Then there's the others that would have been like land assemblers. There's institutional capital that's land assembling, same sort of thing. They're a little bit more patient. They don't have to sell, and 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 they'll still hold on to those prices. And then there's there's uh, individuals who are companies that have bought uh, in the peak, over leveraged, and are now struggling with possible interest payments that are required with with in increases in, in interest rates. And they're the ones that are going to be in a distressed situation. They tend not to be the most desirable pieces of land. <laughs> like. There's some nice parcels that might be in a distressing situation or soon to be maybe distressing, but they're generally not the best, highest, best use, grade A quality beef uh, yeah. type product. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. So any any flavor you want to add there, Nuraz? I know that you guys, you said you guys are always looking even in, in, a, in softer markets to see if you can find, find no, some I think, good I think stuff. Frank has carved out kind of the three the three different players that yeah. you just see in the land space. I mean, what we're, as you know, locations we look for are always prime locations. And very simply, we haven't really seen the softening. Uh, we see a lot of shock from brokers when they say, okay, hey, like quickly walk me through this. I <laughs> uh, just use numbers to explain myself. Oh, it was 225 a foot uh, a year ago. And how are you telling me today you're thinking it's around 120, 130 bucks a foot? Like how, how, how can you explain that? You go through the whole, hey, this is why, these are the inputs, this is what we project, this is what we can reliably say, this is the conservatism we need to carry, and this is what it washes out to you. Land is a residual product, or a residual pricing uh, part of the equation. And mm -hmm. so 
I'm sure you try to think about creative structuring and long closings and try to financial engineer something, but we're just so far apart right now. And to Frank's point, you know, it's the, the kind of, how can you tell me in a year it's changed so quickly? It's just not, it's just not resonating when you explain it. And yeah. so, you know, I don't think that's hence why you're not seeing any big land trades of, of kind of prime location. Yeah. Maybe it's transitory. I think we, is that, how <laughs> can, can I pull an inflation uh, term? It's a transitory situation. Maybe the prices will bounce right back up to 225. So, so let, let's, let's move on to the next, next topic I hear. I pulled some info from CMHC on standing inventory. So CMHC publishes monthly data on the Toronto CMA housing market. And in July, there was just 33 units of completed and unabsorbed supply of condominium apartments, which is the lowest level considering the 33 years of data they make available on their website, which is which is was kind of shocking. So this, essentially, this is completed developer-owned inventory that has not been sold. So, it's, you know, like I said, I was a bit shocked to see this. So um, it's a bit of, obviously, it's a bit of a lagging indicator because, you know, a lot of developers sold their product, you know, sold out their developments, uh, you know, years ago uh, in the pre-construction phase. So they have nothing left to sell. But it does show well, the interesting thing that we were just kind of discussing before we got on, on the mics is that there doesn't seem to be issues with closings, right? And that, that if the number's going down, that people are buying brand new product from developers that is completed and they can walk through. So, um, so maybe I know that you do some inventory loans. Are you seeing more requests for that or are, are developers anticipating that they're going to see, you know, closings that don't go through and they're going to be able to have to, have to take back that inventory? What's where, what are you seeing on that side of things? Um, well, listen, I don't want to question CMHC data, but <laughs> <laughs> like the I, government not I, tracking listen, data correctly. Come I, on. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how they do it. And I don't I'm not a data. I don't do what you do, Ben. And, and, and you know, I, I just see what I see and I and I get information coming to me and requests coming to me. And I can just tell you, like, you know, we have one condo that we just provided financing for an inventory loan, that one condo alone had 23 units standing in the door. <laughs> so like, <laughs> like, I can't believe there's 10 more in the yeah. entire GTA or whatever, yeah. even sub-market yeah. of pick a market. Yeah. I just don't, I don't know. So, so that's my point uh, to start with. And I would say to answer your question is, yeah, we are seeing more inventory loans. I've done, I think we've done, my team's done maybe four inventory loans in the last three or four months, uh, which we hadn't really done at all in two years and since I started my shop. And, um, and, and we are seeing more requests for it. We're seeing it actually on the low rise side, Linda. We've got a client of ours that uh, called us up and said, yeah. And that's a more expensive product for the most part. So those might even be more difficult to sell or, you know, getting um, confirmation of mortgage takeouts on like, you know, a single family house, 1.6, 2 million, two and a half million dollars. We're starting to see those coming uh, up too, which is really interesting. We haven't quite tested the inventory loan market uh, on the uh, financing side, uh, like lenders for low rise. So I'm going to be really curious uh, about what's going on on that side of the market. Well, we've, we've typically shied away from luxury low rise, um, so to call it. So, but we do have a few projects that are under construction with, you know, 20% of unsold inventory. Um, and, you know, just last month, we sort of did an internal review of all those projects um, and taking a really hard look to see how, you know, our prices compare to what's reselling on the market today. Um, and we've had to have some hard uh, conversations with our development partners about 
Do we drop prices? Um, and for the buyers who actually bought at those prices, do we offer them some kind of incentive to make them stay in the deal? Because I think that's really, you know, in addition to what you touched on earlier, both of you, um, about the options that uh, purchasers may have if they can't close because the valuation has suddenly dropped by 10 to 20%. Um, I don't think a lot of developers have started doing it, and I'm not sure what the bank's view is on it. I don't think it's 100% allowed, but VTBs to, to mm -hmm. these purchasers um, may be something that we're going to have to get used to if the you know market continues to decline in terms of uh, purchase price. Didn't the conservatory group used to do VTB loans on their a lot of the big, loans? A lot of the big developers back in the day did it. We saw one actually last year where someone couldn't close and the developer did offer the VTB, and we actually did the, help the finance with the, the, uh, the balance of the, the requirements. But they offered a second mortgage CTB. Okay. Uh, so, so that's an interesting point, actually, Linda. I, I, I haven't really, I saw it only once, but I haven't considered that to be a real possibility, especially in the low rise. I think we have to get creative. Like, yeah. I mean, if it was a one off, you know, one or two buyers who can't close, then it's not the end of the world. But if you have, 10% of your buyers who can't close, what do you do, right? You can't even, can't liquidate your construction loan. So you got to start thinking about what to do. So those are the kind of conversations. I don't have a, an answer yet. Yeah. Are, but are you having any discussions with them just to say, hey, let's just hold off selling these. Like we say, we we, we, we can liquidate the construction loan, but we those other five units, let's just rent those out for two years and then let's go back to the market. Are you having any of those conversations with your, your clients? Uh, we are. Because of our fund structure, we don't, you know, we do have an, we have a fund investment horizon and we typically try to get out of the deal as soon as we can uh, to return, <laughs> to return a, you know, we have, we have investors to Your to investors pay. want exits? This <laughs> yeah. is crazy time. Uh, so, and, and to be honest, like who knows what's going to happen in three years? We can hold on, but it's not like these inventories loans are coming at a cheap price. No, um, but it's still cheaper than your, than, than the cost of equity, I would imagine for your developer and, you know, to get equity out at a, you know, relatively low cost, prime plus one and a half, prime plus two. Okay, prime is high right now, so it's like really <laughs> scary to talk about like 9.2% financing, uh, especially in our commercial world. But like, it's not a terrible option when the, what's, what, what do you value equity at? Yeah, you like really have to 18, do the math. 20%, and today maybe even 30, yeah. if you're going into a new deal, because debt's, debt's now priced at nine to, to 18 from first to mez. So you got to price in your equity at 22, 25. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I was but having a good day, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore. So, Sorry, big guy. Wow. Wow. 30, eh? It's okay. It's, it's going to shift. It's going to shift. It's just... I don't I'm not know. in this space, but that just seems like crazy. I haven't to me. seen that. I'm just, it's just the logic of people. Like when we approach someone with a deal, they're like, well, why would I do that deal? I can get almost as much and get bigger security in either a second position or a first position. So you, you show them an equity deal and, you know, I kind of go like hat in hand, kind of like, oh, this is a really good deal. Yeah, two years ago. Like today, I just got more options. So, like, why would I only take a 20% or 22%? I'm not talking about it like, Investors, I'm talking about like institutional capital, and 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 even then, though, now we're going down a whole rabbit hole of capital. So <laughs> I don't want I don't want to go dominate that that conversation. But I just think to exit someone through cheaper sources of capital, even though today's capital is more expensive, is an exit strategy both for equity, for developers. And it brings me business, so I'm happy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're happy to pr promote business for you. 
<laughs> so what, what else did I have on here? Um, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit. We didn't, maybe got a little bit into it, but I do some work for Kijiji and I uh, analyze their numbers. We ha- actually haven't released the, the Q2 report yet, but um, so rents, you know, for, uh, you know, condo apartments average $2,570 per month and uh, in the first quarter, about $3 and 88 cents a square foot. And again, this is, this is a huge swath of condo apartments could be, you know, registered in 1968 could be, you know, just occupied two months ago. And that's up to in the second quarter, $2,592 a month, 392. It just kind of blows my mind that $2,600 a month. Uh, and to think of, you know, when I was starting out, how difficult that is. You know, a lot of my clients are interested in in, the, in underwriting the, the rental market, both the rental market and the condo market on their on their sites. What are your thoughts, Ken, uh, Frank, on the on the rental market right now in the midst of kind of rapid rent growth, declining affordability? Uh, are you are you you know these land deals that you're going are are people you know saying to you, hey, this is going to be a rental project, or are they coming with you and saying, hey, we may have to switch ten years depending on market conditions moving forward? Yeah, like there's a lot of shifting happening, and it's really driving. It's been being driven by the availability of getting financing in place. And, you know, CMHC and, and their, you know, MLI select program and their construction program. And, and they're, 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 they, they've, they're, they've been the number one driver of finance, uh, financing projects. And so you're seeing a lot of shifting. There was a deadline, like, a, I think it was a month ago or two months ago where their premiums are going up. Uh, it was going to be pretty substantial. So there was a flood of applications going in for, for CMHC, uh, mostly takeout financing, but also a lot of construction and, and, you know, over inundated CMHC and, and all the underwriters of the lenders who operate for that program. <laughs> and, and then, you know, I just think that, um, I, all, all of this leads to an uncertainty as to what the actual product will ultimately be. Like there's a lot of modeling going on because of, again, broken performance. And I don't know where it's going to end up. Um, because, you know, interest rates, even on uh, takeout loans, rely on debt service coverage. And that debt service coverage is, relies on uh, an NOI, which relies on rents. And with rents going up, it's great. But with, you know, if you can't cover your interest costs and you can't manage a certain debt service coverage, the numbers don't work. Again, another broken pro, uh, pro forma. And so, we need housing and there needs to be massive changes in, in terms of the structure of how we offer rental, like the whole HST thing, like it's, it's got to, everyone's talked about it, that, but we've been talking about that for 10 years. That, that's got to get, get, get fixed yeah. immediately. And that, that generates some more interest in terms of rents. Like, I, you know, I think it's really impossible for people to afford rents in the city. And I think that's a long-term problem that's, that you're going to start feeling in the short to midterm. Like, Homelessness is not a joke, and it's a real problem, and it, it's a, and there's no silver bullet, and it's a major, major problem. And not having sufficient housing and affordable housing is a major, major problem, and it's really sad. And I'm not, you know, I don't love to see, quite frankly, tents in a park, um, but I also don't have a solution for them. Yeah. So you know, we're living like this in the city, and this is a, a phenomenon that's happening across North America. And I was on the West Coast recently visiting my son in LA, and it's it's a it's a disaster out there. And I sort of see Toronto, and I'm scared of Toronto turning into that. I think we still have an opportunity to change that, and it needs and requires massive change in how we operate affordable housing, uh, how we finance it. Uh, how it gets presented and it, it needs a, a, a bigger approach. But yeah, like those rents will keep going up until people can 
can't afford it. And guess what? They're not going to live in Toronto. Yeah. yeah. That's my fear. Yeah. Interesting. Neuros might be interested in this, this data because he's done a couple of projects on Young Street. I was talking to the couple of the, uh, the people that run the Young Street BIA and so they do a survey of people who live along. No Young bike lanes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who live along Young Street, you know, up to, up from, uh, you know, basically from, from, from Queen to, to, uh, um, uh, to Bloor. And they were saying that they, you know, every year they do a survey and, and, um, a couple years ago it was 50% of the people said they wouldn't recommend living in their building on Young Street. Right. And then they just did the latest survey. It was up to like 65% of people. And the number one thing was, is, you know, just too many homeless people and too many getting, you know, not, not just that they're there and we see them, but they're being harassing and uh, in your face and and so that's you know that's a scary part that young street like one of the most desirable streets in the entire you know country that people are saying no i wouldn't i wouldn't live there anymore right uh, i wouldn't recommend someone live in this this street so it's certainly an issue that we have to 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 deal with but it does does segue into my into my next kind of story that i wanted to to read about which which um obviously is a former employer of nurez so this is an article that was in Renex, 770 mixed uh, income rental units coming to Toronto's Canary District. So Maple House is developed by uh, Dream, Kilmer and Tricon will have 770 mixed income units with 30% designated as affordable with priority going to single mothers, women fleeing abuse, people with accessibility issues and Indigenous people. So while Ontario um, uh, seen the homeownership rate decline, it's dropped from 71.4% 10 years ago to 68.4%. Uh, not much of a drop. <laughs> Due to prohibitive costs in other major cities such as uh, London and New York, it's you know 70 people, uh, 70 percent of people rent, so only 30 percent are, are ownership. So it's much more common to rent uh, and have roommates for an extended period of time. And Toronto should continue to build high quality purpose built rentals to provide affordable housing. So, I mean, no, no shock there. So, um, so Nuraz, I wanted to direct this question to you. It says, although many pre-construction condo investors ultimately end up renting their suites, uh, they want to eventually sell them to end users. So investor activity may drop due to a lack of viable exit opportunities, even in the face of higher rents and more people renting. How is the shift uh, to a higher share of renting versus owning impacting your decisions moving forward? Well, uh, you know, we don't necessarily agree that it's just eventually being sold to end users. Yeah. Um, you know, they're just as likely to sell to another investor. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't think investor activity is going to drop uh, to do, like due to a lack of viable uh, you know, exit opportunities. Yeah. Uh, even in the face of higher rent, um, you know, your presumption is kind of not one that, not one that we agree with. You can, qu you can question uh, my assumption. You can you know, question it. <laughs> and so, you know, I, we don't see the liquidity of Toronto condos being impacted. Okay. Um, you know, I think there's, I think, you know, we think there's still a healthy pool of both types of buyers. And look, like you say, higher rents keep investors interested. And so, you know, this is actually a positive trend if anything um, but we don't see it as a major consideration yeah yeah and have you ever uh, looked into the you know the RCFI program or or you know adding affordable housing units in any of your projects have you ever gone down that uh, yes uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually you know we are working on one deal with possible RCFI right now um, great program but like all things associated with any government related <laughs> things, it's got a lot of complications. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's, it, there's a significant increase to the administrative burden um, when working with CMHC. So, 
Uh, yes, gone down the rabbit hole a bit, have really been scrubbing it hard and try to understand it, but there's a lot of uh, administrative loopholes and, and um, kind of timing considerations on when they actually get on board and yeah. how, how deep you've got to be in before they commit. So a lot of things that make it difficult. So, you know, take a, take a tip from the green belt uh, people and uh, maybe call the minister of housing. Yeah. All you have to do is just like hand one of the guys like a brown manila envelope and just say, this is my project. Uh, get it approved. <laughs> That's all it takes. Just a brown manila. So <laughs> um, here's a question. It's kind of, you know, off the cuff. But uh, um, do you think having affordable units in a building impacts the rents of the market units in the building in a negative in a negative way wow that's uh just off the top of your head you know know. like intuitively yes but practically no like i think my gut tells me yes like just the notion of oh i'm investing in a a property and and, and i want it to be you know i'm going to air quote so you can't see this um you know of of luxury or higher end and i have a um a thought about the kind of tenant mix that's in this building and affordability, you know, this notion of affordability drives that, that, you know, the feeling of desirability down. So I think my gut instinct is like, it affects, it affects it. I think practically speaking, it doesn't, it adds a lot more cultural viability and a lot more, um, interesting sort of dynamics at play. I think it opens up, um, there's also just a massive demand, like to Nurez's point, like we need more product and it doesn't really matter, you know, if it's, you know, yes, it matters, it's affordable, but it doesn't really matter, uh, the form of it. We just need more housing. And in doing so and delivering that, you know, there will be a mix of, of people living in that housing. And I think it just adds to the cultural mosaic that exists already in the city. And I think ultimately people just need a place to stay that's affordable. They can, you know, make their rent checks payments or their mortgage payments and, you know, go to work and, and, and come back and rinse and repeat. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think when I think through it, it doesn't, but my gut instinct is always yes. Yeah. I've always, uh, been a supporter of inclusionary zoning, but in the right inclusionary zoning. I said, if I was talking about this like 20 years ago, almost 20 years, maybe 15 years ago, that, if we just, the city just cut the developer a check, every single project, every single project that you do, we're going to take 15 units of affordable uh, housing, right? We're going to you know just pay you straight up the cost that you, you for those, and we're going to add that to the pool. So it would even help in approvals because people would know that every single project that gets built in this city, there's affordable housing units owned by the city in that project, right? That would be a good story to tell, right? But not this inclusionary zoning now that they propose where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, you just pay for it because you make a lot of money developer. So you pay for it. Right. Even though there's, you know, best case, uh, you know, there's all these like cases from all these other municipalities and all these other cities around the world about the way to do it. And they just ignored all of it and just said, you pay for it. Right. So anyways, I know that there's, I know Dougie's killing that, but yeah, but the, the whole, the whole system's broken. It just really is. Mm-hmm. And, and how to fix it there again, I don't have an answer. So I, I'm just criticizing for the sake of criticizing, but it's, it, it requires a, a deeper, um, not just conversation, but real approach and a dedicated capital by all levels of government and developing community, planning community to really get together and solve this. And um, I know everyone's trying and I just, but I don't see the solution yet. Yeah. And just to add to, to Frank's point, I think, you know, one thing that we need to, you know, recognize is like, what is affordable? Because people can't live in the city unless they make six digits, like over a hundred thousand dollars. So even if you had affordable units in your condo building, you know, those rents are not cheap. The people who are 
you know, qualifying to live there are probably, you know, students and um, maybe nurses, like people who are professionals, not just the homeless people that are living on the streets today, right? So um, to answer your question, do I think it'll affect values? I think it depends, but, you know, Probably not. That's that's kind of my gut sense. Well, low income earners, right? They right now they can't afford to live in the city, but they're all working in the city. Where they're taking buses down, like you know Jane and Keel and and you know McCowan and like they're they're traveling extra hours. They're 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 the ones most most deeply affected because they have to drive to affordability or take transit to affordability. They're paying rents at maybe two two and a half dollars a square foot way up in the middle of nowhere, relatively speaking, but they've got to come downtown and work because Richmond they're in Hill. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, like they got to, like they can't afford to be down in the city and you know, and we are seeing, and we, we got a couple clients that do a lot of like, I, I'm going to misquote what they now call it, but essentially co-living and, and this notion of co-living and shared spaces and shared accommodations and shared uh, tenancy is a reality around the world in major cities. We have not quite embraced that in Toronto and that will be part of the solution. And that's the way to keep like relative affordability to Linda's point, um, an option in the downtown core. And 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 that's how you you continue to have a vibrant downtown core yeah. rather than only people that can afford, you know, that are making $100,000 plus and can only afford to live in the city. Yeah, I think anyone graduating will now have to realize that they won't be getting out of the roommate situation, that they're gonna have to just keep having roommates and, uh, and living the bachelor life for uh, for a little while longer. So, yeah, it'll be an interesting, yeah, because I've, you know, tried to work with, you know, probably the exact same client as you have that's that's underwriting those co-living deals. They look very cool, and it would be, but they're still not, Cheap, no, you know, when, so I'm, cheap. when I'm looking at the monthly uh, mm-hmm. the monthly cost to live in these things, right? I'm like, oh my goodness. Relative value is pretty good though. The dollar per square foot is high, but what you find is, you know, you come in and uh, some of them are like already pre like furnished, and so basically you walk in with your laptop, you walk in with your bedding, and you move in, and so it's a inexpensive move in, it's an inexpensive move out, it's all encompassing, and the relative dollar per unit is actually pretty affordable. It's just, it's a really small unit and the per square foot number is sky high, which is hard to underwrite as pro forma and trying to convince a lender that that's the, you know, the market, but they're all getting there slowly. Yeah. So I'll, I'll jump onto one last topic before we go to the, we have our last little rapid fire segment. And this one caused a little bit of controversy in in the recent weeks. Um, this is, uh, an article that was on uh, stories.com. Uh, it says Trudeau housing is not a federal responsibility. Prime minister Trudeau spoke about Canada's housing crisis, discussing how it falls onto municipalities, provinces, political rivals, and interest rates. During a press conference, he announced a six, $64 $64 million investment in rental housing in Hamilton, while also addressing the significant lack of supply in the country. It was evasive on the topic of the Fed's responsibility on the issue of affordability. Trudeau discussed how municipalities must look for solutions and provinces must also step up. Additionally, he talked about high interest rates and another is another factor to blame for unaffordability and says that once inflation rates fall and rate cuts can begin, affordability will improve. While provinces have control over zoning, land use, density and approvals, the federal government has control over ambitious immigration targets. A report from TD states that if the current pace of immigration remains, Canada's housing supply gap could widen even further by 500,000 units in the next two years. So um, an important note here that uh, the Canadian population grew by 1.2 million people in 2022, 60% of which were non-permanent residents. So I guess the the question will be to you, Frank, I'll, I'll aim it to 
to you, this first one. Do you think that our immigration targets are misaligned with our ability to deliver new housing to satisfy that increased demand? That's a big question, man. And I, why am I always first? Like, what is going on here? Um, well, let me first maybe just address Trudeau because I never have an opportunity and I really want to. <laughs> like, I don't know where he's, like, what he's, where he's coming from. This is insane commentary. It's, you know, CMHC was created by the federal government for affordability, for housing, for, you know, post-war um, uh, built housing of people coming back from overseas and needing a place to live. Like, it's absurd to me that, that he is, like, basically wiping his hands of this and then at the same time blaming inflation, which... Okay, I'm not gonna blame it all on Trudeau, but like it is a big part of the global picture and the, but the national picture. So, you know, his government is absolutely been not, not help, worse than not helping. They've been making things worse. And for him to just like wipe his hands of this is shameful and it's embarrassing. And I'm like absolutely devastated by it. Like it's just unconscionable. Um, so let me just get that out of the way. <laughs> And uh, and what was your actual question? Well, Sorry. It, it, was, it was really are, are we? Uh, you know, I'm a, obviously I'm someone that's pro-immigration. My mother oh, yeah. was an immigrant. Yeah. You know, I invite it, but at, at some point in time, you know, do we have to put a cap on this thing for just our ability to deliver the infrastructure needed to to house these people, to yeah. to give them the health care they need, to be able to you know, is, are the job are the jobs there to support these people? I mean, these are all all yeah, questions that need to be answered, and we're in a obviously we're in a housing crisis here, so that's it's certainly a consideration that needs to be uh, needs to be discussed, right? Yeah, listen, I, I'm, I'm an immigrant myself. I came here as a child um, and, uh, you know, like English as my second language type thing. So I've been blessed and really fortunate by, by, by the immigration experience personally. And so I understand it and I believe in it. I fundamentally believe in it. I think we have to have a dedicated approach to what we're doing with this. I think we need immigration to come in and fill very, very specific things. We talked about it here about labor supply shortages, about skilled labor, um, you know, those are the types of immigrants we need to have here because the reality is, you know, my children, most of our children aren't chasing those jobs, even though they're incredibly lucrative jobs. Like we talked about how, you know, like there, there's good money to be made in a trade, but we've raised a lot of children in the believing that you got to be a lawyer, a doctor, a finance guy, a, you know, statistician, an equity partner, <laughs> a developer. Right? And so, you know, we have all these professional, these professionalization of, of work in this, in, in our society. Um, and yet all the work that needs to get done from nursing to, to just general health care to, you know, um, uh, all, all of the labors, you know, that is work that needs to get done. And, and I think we need to dedicate that. There's incredibly skilled people all over the world that can do like, it's not easy to lay, to, to, to put up drywall. It's a very skilled, uh, trade and uh, bricklaying and, and, you know, concrete forming, like all of this stuff requires immigration and we need more of it. So yes, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, I, we need to have more of it, as much of it as we can. This is a great country to live in. People want to come here. It's stable. It's consistent. we got to get the Trudeau government out, and it'll be better. But <laughs> I will say that uh, we have to be more focused and dedicated. There's also the piece that we, like, no one really, well, we talk about it, but we don't talk about it normally in real estate, is, you know, there's there's people that we need to help come to the city and come to this country. And the refugees, there are, there are legitimate refugees that need to be here, and we want to be able to welcome them because they're a massive contributor to society over time. And, and, and that continues to happen. And we need to continue to do that. We have to 
offset some of that lagging time for them to get their feet wet and get ready with actual ready to go uh, immigration that can come and actually serve purpose and, and do real, real good solid work for our country. I believe that. I believe that. So on the supply side, Nerez, let's just let's just get it out there. What's what's the biggest bottleneck that you're seeing right now? Well, there's there's a few. I mean, low hanging fruit is obviously regulation. Uh, you know, government tariffs, twenty five to thirty percent of the total revenue from from a unit sale goes to the government. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're the biggest, the single biggest profiteer from a new house, new house being built. Uh, you know, any developer would foam at the mouth for 30% off the top. Yeah. Right. No equity investment, no costs and no work. Uh, you know, it's double the 15% profit margin that many developers underwrite to. So, you know, that's, that's the first kind of glaring, obvious uh, bottleneck. Um, look also the pace of approvals. It's just, you know, slow approvals, I know the topic has been beat up to death, but it's still there. No matter the various programs or things that we hear or the fast tracking and so forth, it's, uh, you know, gold star programs and all the rest of it. It's still ridiculous. Topic, obviously, another major topic, you know, prohibitive interest rates, huge bottleneck, obviously, and causing limbo across the board from sales to costs and everything in between. And, um, you know, I think if it gets approved, inclusionary zoning as well. Yeah. So uh, those are kind of easy, easy kind of regulation-based answers, you know, and then we've touched on it earlier in the talk, you know, land vendors, right? There's a bottle, that's a bottleneck in the space that we play in, you know, Frank thoroughly covered it off, but, you know, market expectations haven't changed with the fluctuations that we're seeing. And so, you know, in times like now with no land trades, there's just going to be like more, there's going to be less supply in, you know, five, six, seven years. So I don't see any clear path to those bottlenecks uh, opening up anytime soon, and but we can definitely forecast and see how long the impact's going to be. Um, you know, high-rise space; it is, these are not things that we turn out overnight. Yeah. Uh, they're long in process, and you mentioned Ben how buildings are getting bigger and taller and, yeah. and larger, and sites are getting tighter, more difficult. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so you know that's you know, and then another obvious one, and Frank was just touching on, and is, is trades and skilled labor um, managing immigration to come in in a certain fashion to deal with all the things that a functioning economy requires um, is important. And I don't think we're doing a good job in, in actively managing immigration to allow for more skilled labor to come in to help us with, with what we need to be taking, taking care of. So, Perfect. So, so, so Linda, what is, what is something that a lot of your clients are complaining about? So, you know, I'm sure that you, I'm sure there's this like, oh, this person again, <laughs> they're complaining about this. What, what, what's, what, 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 Where's what, the money? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I mean, I think I think Nerez and Frank have already touched on a lot of the issues that we're, we, as in an industry, are facing right now. Um, you know, one thing I'll, I'll add on is, you know, with respect to Bill 23, and I think, you know, the country and the province all recognize that we have an affordable uh, affordability problem, but in a lot of ways, it's it's has not been executed very well. What we're seeing on a lot of our projects is, um, you know, the province, through Bill 23, they've try to limit certain powers from the region and the different um, stakeholders involved, whether it's TRCA and, you know, um, what's ultimately happened is I think they rushed through this bill. 
the city has no idea how to handle it. They don't want to be penalized because, you know, now what happens is if they get a file on their desk, an application, they have, I think, I don't can't remember if it was 60 or 90 days to make you know, a response. And if they fail to do that, there are penalties that are on them to refund certain uh, application fees. So what we're seeing now um, across different municipalities in Ontario is the city is now implementing what they're calling pre-submission consultation, pre, pre-application consultation, <laughs> and various stages. Like, it's not just one, right? Mm-hmm. They have one, and two, and three. And some, some municipalities will send them an application and say, we've addressed all of your comments. Um, here, is all, here are the, all the reports that we would have normally done in a full zoning application. And you know what the city does? They don't open it. Because they know as soon as they open that file, the time starts ticking. Um, and then with respect to the to the other stakeholders, what's what ends up happening is now that TRCA doesn't necessarily have a seat at the table, they're just getting they're just outsourcing these reports, and it's taking longer. So it's it's just not working <laughs> um, for us as developers, and with interest rates where they are, the development process is taking it's still very long. Like we we still need to budget at least two, three years um, from the time of, you know, uh, buying the land to when we think we're going to get zoned. So that's that's a, that's a big challenge for us right now. Yeah, Lim's one hundred percent right. This is happening all the way all the way around all the municipalities. And and the interesting thing about it, and it's the double edged sword, is these municipalities now have to staff up. And guess what that means? That means it costs more money. Which that now, but guess what that means? That's more <laughs> debt uh, that's being serviced that needs to be serviced from a municipal level. Guess what that means? Right. More taxes, more DCs, <laughs> more you know all of it. Like you know, even today, City of Toronto has been talking about the report that came up. I didn't actually read it yet. I don't know if it's come out yet, but there's like all these new ta- uh, fees. And, and taxes yeah. that they're planning on implementing in well, the next couple of years. on $3 million homes, so that's going to hit you pretty hard. Oh, stop. <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> but like, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. You're going to see more and more of that because... And this is like, now you're going to play cat and mouse. It's like, you know, we need development applications to move fast. And so the government de- devises and implements a strategy... The municipality takes that strategy, to Linda's point, 100%. They did not know what was coming to them. Yeah. They are scrambling... And like I feel for the planners and the engineers and, and all everyone in the, the staff, but at the end of the day, now they're like they're they're gaming the system yeah. the same way that developers would game the system. And now there's this cat and mouse. And and will things get done any quicker? To Nerez's point, no, it won't. Things are still taking long. It, it it needs to be a more collaborative approach to getting housing built. Period. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing how people will always find the loopholes, right? And I always reminded of. Uh, of, I was talking to a, a guy that that worked in a prison. He was a prison guard, right? And, what were uh, you doing? I don't know why. I don't know why, how I got in a conversation with this person. So more. they got they got you know fifteen sick days, and if someone covered off the other person's sick days, then they got time and a half, right? So they would just plan out their sick days for the year and go, Bill, you'll work here, and Tim, and Tim, you work my spot. So they would get so they guaranteed to get time and a half for fifteen days a year. Budget inflation. They, yeah. So it's just it's like the, I was like, wow, that's actually kind of you know. <laughs> <laughs> initiative, terrible initiative, but it's 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 an initiative. So, anyways, we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll leave the the roundtable part of that. But each show, I do uh, a rapid fire. So this is kind of you know some some quick questions. We're looking you know five ten word uh, answers, uh, really quick. Uh, we'll start quick with me ones. this time. <laughs> so yeah, we'll not we'll not start. We'll leave refrain for for the end. So we'll 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 go with Nurez. So. So first, first question to you, Nerez. Uh, since you became a father, are you working fewer hours? 
Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Will the average resale price be lower in August 2024 than August 2023 in the Toronto area? Higher. Higher. Okay. We got a bowl. We got a bowl. If you had to guess, how many years will your latest condo project stand before it is torn down or destroyed in some way? 200 years. <laughs> For some reason, that question always fascinates me. It's, it's, I see the building getting question. built, and I'm like, how long is that going to be there? <laughs> I don't know. That's just me. Maybe I'm just obsessed with that. So, are you underwriting any development opportunities in the suburbs? No. <laughs> if you could pick any company to fill the retail at the bottom of your condo project, who would it be? Loblaws, because it's useful. Okay. And Apple, because I love the brand. The brand. Yeah. Nice, yeah. nice. All right. So, Linda, if a development company was created by the City of Toronto to deliver mixed income condo and rental buildings, do you think that they would have trouble attracting top talent? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's, here's, here's one. When there are donuts brought to the office <laughs> to share and someone cuts it in half and only takes half, do you think that they're disciplined or annoying? <laughs> I hate to say it, but I do do it. <laughs> disciplined. <laughs> okay. Uh, will Olivia Chow last more than one term as Toronto's mayor? Probably. Probably. Okay. Should there be 50 and 60 story towers in Regent Park? Yes. Why not? Yeah, of course. I think so. Uh, the city of Toronto requires most new residential buildings to program a unit mix with 10% three bedroom suites. Is this good policy? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right, Frank. As long as you build them with knockout panels. <laughs> <laughs> Always a loophole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Here we go, Frank. We got some. We got some good ones for you here. Oh God. Are you one of those drivers that swerves around flat sewer grates or manhole covers? Ever seen those people just driving that? It's like, oh, was something on the road? Oh, it's just a man. Depends what car I'm driving. (laughs) Okay, when you're looking for advice on the state of the housing market, do you go and uh, seek out the advice of a guy that lives in a basement apartment in rural Ontario? (laughs) Do you ask a short seller uh, that lost money during the Great Recession? Do you ask a mortgage broker with a two-star Yelp rating? Or do you go to a Twitter-loving Leslieville realtor with bad hair? Oh, my God. I know every single one of these people. And that's hilarious. <laughs> Obviously, none of the above. The above. Good answer. That's the right answer. Okay. A local developer started raising capital on Addy Invest, which is a crowd-funded real estate investment program out of Vancouver. Do you think these firms that target retail investors will be successful? No. You're meaning up to... <laughs> You're meeting a potential client for the first time at a coffee shop. Do you go with a suit and tie or do you go with a sport coat and trousers? Depends on the client. Depends on the client. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, who's your favorite developer in Toronto? Oh, Mod. Development's good answer. Put him on the spot. Here we go. Awesome. Well, that's it for the show, guys. (laughs) Well, I appreciate all you guys being here. Frank, do you want to plug the website? Where where do they go to to find you? Um, Frankandco.com, F-R-A-N-C-A-N-D-C-O.com. Awesome. And Linda, so if someone wants to invest in a harbor equity fund, how would they go about doing that? 
they can check out our website at harborequity.com and uh, they can either reach out to me or uh, our investor relations uh, head, uh, Ann Holly. And Holly, perfect. So, so Nurez, you have some unsold inventory. Where does where does someone go if they would like to buy a brand new, high end condominium apartment? I'll come to moddevelopments.com, and you can find me there or any of our smart members of our team. I'm happy to discuss it. Awesome. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you.